Hey, welcome back to Intimate Interactions. Let's get back to discussing the ways we share love and intimacy with our fellow humans. Relationships, kink, polyamory, group sex, it's time to unlearn stigma and live our best lives as our best selves. All thanks to my amazing Patreon supporters. Intimate Interactions has no ads but this one. If you want to keep it that way, you can go to patreon.com slash victorsalmon. You get access to exclusive premium content like all of my coping with jealousy stuff. And hey, if that makes you jealous of my patrons, it sounds like it might be time to sign up. Free resources are available at victorsalmon.com slash resources, and book recommendations are at intimatepodcast.com forward slash books. Also, my Patreon supporters don't have to listen to this ad. Now, let's talk about the episode. Lisa and Paula are back again. Our monogamous, vanilla, heterosexual women of color in their 40s, entrepreneurial moms and wives duo, who met during their MBA programs at UBC, is back. This session turned into suburban housewives curious about my alternative lifestyle without any desire to change their current lives presently, which I think is awesome. These kinds of cultural exchange are so fascinating to me. We don't have to have the same needs to understand each other's needs. We don't have to prioritize the same goals to appreciate one another and the challenge of pursuing those goals. Sometimes being at different places in life reminds us of the unique joys we have, like families, children, and careers in their cases, or in my case, the beautiful tangle that is my intertwining of multiple intimate relationships and kink and non-monogamy and... Yeah, just my exploration through human intimacy and how different it looks for me than it does for some other folks, and how similar at the same time. There certainly doesn't have to be a trade-off, and I don't mean to imply that. As, of course, all of my non-monogamous parent friends will tell you, love and kindness in the world can be as ubiquitous as your circumstances and your heart will allow. However, your time is limited, and while it may seem like you have a lot of time in your 20s, I've found one of the best parts of aging into my 30s has been my evolving relationship to my time. So, too, as time becomes more limited, does it become more important? So, yeah, I guess I'm trying to do fewer things I don't want to do with my life and more things I really do want to do with my life. I'm valuing my time and my energy and my effort. I guess one of the things I really like doing is making this podcast for you. If you want to support me in that endeavor, you can just tell a friend that you heard this podcast and you really liked it, or, and you really hated it, or whatever keeps you coming back. And if you want to be really helpful, you can help other intimacy nerds find me by just leaving a review on whatever platform you get your podcasts on, especially iTunes. Anyways, thank you so much for supporting the show and for listening. I look forward to sharing this with you. Have yeah. you, have you considered opening your marriage? Is that That's a possibility you? in 10 years. Like, we're not right now when the Got kids you. are still in school. They're still young. Got you. But in 10 years, that could be a possibility. We could either open it up. And there's no risk in doing that at all, right? If it right. doesn't work out. It doesn't work out. It doesn't work out, but at least you tried it. So it's a huge possibility. We're, we're, we're open to so many things. It's so interesting looking at it from a monogamous married perspective from a different generation because the way I approach relationships is very much as a relationship anarchist. So these things are all like separable. They all come mm-hmm. apart. You can have a domestic nesting partner and also have sexual partners on the side and everyone can know about everyone and be totally comfortable with those roles. Yeah. But that's really different from like a monogamous marriage. You know the uh, definition of compersion? I in, in an open relationship. Um, uh, go ahead. I, I heard about that 
the notion, that definition, it is fascinating to me. It's opposite of jealousy. I mean, I, I don't know that that's necessarily the case, personally. Yeah. But if you want to go on, you're welcome to. Well, what I heard yeah, yeah. from the, the podcast that I listened to about somebody talking about open relationship was mm-hmm. compersion is the opposite of jealousy because compersion is when you actually see the person that you love mm-hmm. be with somebody else mm-hmm. and actually be happy for them. That yeah. they're, so that's the biggest dif- difference between true love and possession is, you know, you, you don't have to own somebody in order mm-hmm. to love them. Yeah. And uh, I, uh, we're working towards that. And I think... Again, it's years. a practice. It's not a... I think even... Yes, absolutely. Yeah. A- and I think even for monogamous folks, they know that's not true, like that, that you would need to possess someone. I mean, most people loved someone before they possessed them. Mm-hmm. So I don't think it's necessary to possess someone to have love, and I don't think anyone No, it's even. not. It's separate. I right. think it's it's... But it's, it's just frightening. It's intimidating. Yeah. It's intimidating to even think about your the person that you love be with somebody else. Well, and, and the act of sex and sharing in, in that euphoric kind of out-of-body experience is very personal. And to share that with yeah. another human being, you're that the, the two human beings are sharing in something very personal. Yeah. So you can see the partner that's kind of allowing this to happen is not part of this, part of this growth and experience. And that's that can be pretty, again, vulnerable and scary to let go of. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. There's definitely a lot of, a lot of fear involved, I think, in, in a lot of jealousy. So the reason I don't think compersion is the opposite of jealousy is I think jealousy is an umbrella emotion that holds space for a lot of other emotions. Like sometimes when we experience jealousy, it's not about possessiveness. It's just about envy. Mm-hmm. Maybe you're well, really... jealousy and envy to me is different. Okay. Yeah. So they're not... For, for me, it's not. Well, they same. are, just as possession yeah. and jealousy are different. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's every, it's how you, your perspective. So it's just a different perspective. Sure. Yes. When I, ha- when I envy somebody, I, I want what they have. Right. But when I'm jealous of somebody, I'm afraid of losing what I have. Mm. That's the difference for me. I hear you. I hear you. That that makes a lot of sense. That's probably how I would use those words as well. Mm-hmm. I think, I think there are different reasons why we're afraid in jealousy. And I think being able to be granular and nuanced about how we talk about jealousy is essential to overcoming jealousy. Not that Mm -hmm. you necessarily, quote unquote, overcome it, not that it goes away, but the way that we process jealousy and move forward through jealousy requires a level, in my opinion, a level of emotional awareness Mm -hmm. as to exactly what we're feeling. I, I agree, totally. Like if I say that I'm jealous of one of my partners, that's not helpful to me. I mean, yes, I've identified that I'm afraid of losing that partner, or I've identified that I'm having really negative feelings towards that partner having other relationships. But what does that really mean? Am I feeling possessive? Is this like, I don't want someone else um, engaging with something that I think of as mine? Or is this me being insecure? Maybe I'm really afraid I'm going to lose that partner because I have this insecurity about what I bring to that relationship. Or maybe it's because I see that other person sleeping with my partner and I think, you know, they have so much more than I have in my life. Maybe they've built that legacy already. Mm. Maybe they've built that empire and I see them with their shit together and think, why would she possibly want to be with someone like me when I really, I would like to be sleeping with these people, but I would also like to have more of what that person has. Oh, yeah. 
So there's like there's another element too, which is some of Petra's studies of the quadrants and the way people people sex life or mm -hmm. their sex type. So she's got a quadrant, and sure. one one quadrant is the behaviors, which is much more goal focused. Mm -hmm. um, the other one is the attractor, which you know, as I was explaining in the last podcast, it's the the person that gets lit up by looking good, by being given lots of compliments, told they're gorgeous or stunning. There's the the other quadrant is the intimate. So what lights them up is that intimate connection with a the person they're with. Mm -hmm. And then the fourth one is the um, centralist. They love touch, they love feel. So there is the attractor, there was the intimate, there was the sensualist, and what was the other one? The behaviorist. The behaviorist. So if you know your partner is a behaviorist, sure. I would think it's very easy for, for you to share that person or to let them be free and because they're just goal focused, it's all very physical. But I can see in a relationship where your partner is an intimate, for them to have a relationship, for you to be in an open relationship where they can go with other people, if they're an intimate, you know they have to have very strong emotional connections to them. So that in itself is adds another layer of, of um, what could mm -hmm. cause a threatening, um, threat, it could be threatening or the jealousy to be in a totally different level than if you were with somebody who's a behaviorist, which a behaviorist is just a goal focus, they, they, they do role play and they just all about the orgasm. It's not about the connecting in, the, in that super deep human level. Sure. Have you heard of the five love languages before? You, you gave me that book. Which one? Sorry? The five so languages the, the of book love? Is, the book is abysmal. I'm like... Oh, I, five languages of yeah, love. Yes, I, yes, yes, I yes. totally resent the, the, <laughs> the homophobic and misogynistic person that wrote it. However, the tool itself is a really good tool. Um, which is thinking about the way that we attach to each other and the way that we express love and the way that we receive love being divided mm -hmm. into at least five languages. Yeah, no, yeah, that, that one, that book I read years and years ago, it makes a lot of sense. I think the pet, our friend Petra, who's a sexologist, writing a book on um, the arousal types mm -hmm. that we're talking about right now. I would be super interested in links that I can share with people yeah. for Petra's book. Well, she's sure. got a great service so you can find your sex type. Yeah, she, there is, yeah, there's a survey online. We can share that so people can find out what their sex types are. Mm -hmm. uh, we can send it to you. Thank you. Um, but I think for that, and we we played games at our parties, Trafal parties, so that women could find out what their sex types is. And it's mind-blowing because if you, like, a behavior is an intimate. If you are an intimate and, and your partner is a behaviorist, it, there's... It's a, a huge very disconnect, and if you don't understand what types each other are, you're constantly um, misunderstanding each other the way that yep. you want to be loved. Yeah, we had we had a we, we kind of mixed the groups up, and women didn't know what they were, and we had a group of attractor women, and attractors like like I said, they like to be whispered sweet, sweet things. They're all about the foreplay and about being made feel like they are like the top most important thing in, in, in your world. And we had a behaviors thrown in there just to throw it off. And so we had, <laughs> the question was, what, what's your biggest turnoff? And all the attractors were replying, when he smells, when, when he, um, um, I don't know, they were very like light things, but then the behaviors came in, when he tries anal. <laughs> and it was just like, 
they were opposites, and we're all so different. And understanding our, our arousal type, kick, kicking her out to the other group. <laughs> that was the whole the, the exercise of the game. Was that who, who gets kicked we out? We were randomly putting people in groups, and then after each round, after each question, and the question was, "What is your most ultimate fantasy? And what is your biggest turn on? What is your biggest turn off?" And after each round, the woman that didn't belong to the group. Either voluntarily you left the group, go. or you were voted off the voted island. off the yeah. island. Like our group was saying, <laughs> was talking. Yeah, we're talking about firemen and scents and candles <laughs> right. and, and lingerie, and she's talking about like uh, really harsh. <laughs> yeah, or she's talking about orgasms. Like everything's just going right to the it. Act, yeah, right. BDSM and all that yeah. stuff. So she eventually we're found her group, the right. behaviorists. But it's it, again the <laughs> things like that kind of education increases compassion and understanding of what people are like and then yeah. going back to open relationships not a lot of people it's, it's it isn't even always about culture it's also about your arousal type or who yeah, how you totally. you connect with another human being that could be so specific to a one-on-one -on -one and you can't connect to more than one person at a time that way because it's so intense mm -hmm. yeah. versus if you if you love sex and you love role playing and you love goofing around and playing you could probably have multiple partners I mean I'm just saying this off the top of my head but yeah but we're we are all so different and it's not to throw judgment on the monogamous or the open relationship but we are all such different people and realizing having that awareness is where it's so mind-blowing because yeah, you of one person thought everybody was were attractors yeah and <laughs> until we played that game and then you realize that there's so many people that are not different like you than me <laughs> Yeah, yeah. No, there's there's certainly something to be said for how diverse people are. And we tend to come up with these systems of talking about people, whether it's personality, um, systems of, of dissecting personality, or systems of dissecting relationships. And there are lots of different ones that are saying very similar things. The five love languages is what hit me as closest to what you're talking about in arousal types, but the arousal types is very applied to sex, which I it actually is. really like. It is. Um, yeah. The five love languages are... Um, you have it right there. Physical touch. I acts, do. Acts of service. Yep. Uh, quality time. Words of affirmation. And receiving and gifts. Receiving gifts. Yeah, it's literally on my wall um, <laughs> because that is what's your self-love language. Yeah. And it talks about the ways that we express love to ourselves. So people who might be physical touch might appreciate going to get massages. Um, or doing, you know, uh, a cuddle session with soft blankets or physical activity. Maybe going for a run literally just gets the endorphins flowing for someone. Spa days, skincare routines, even just every morning, uh, swimming, stretching, that would be more physical touch. So those people that really enjoy those activities are probably, that's probably one of their main love languages. And again, this is just another arbitrary system of talking about the way people interact. Then there are acts of service. So, um, Hmm. It's interesting. They have therapy listed there as as um, a way that we can show self-love if we receive love mm -hmm. as acts of service. And I think that's interesting because it really is service to yourself mm -hmm. to go to mm -hmm. therapy. Mm -hmm. Acts of kindness, scheduling, cleaning, delegating, going out. Receiving gifts would be buying yourself stuff like going on trips, um, craft supplies, comfy clothes, um, small gifts, and you know things that help you indulge, essentially investing in yourself. With quality time, we're talking about meditation, spending time working on your relationship with yourself, or spending time doing hobbies, um, taking yourself on dates, or just relaxing, like going outside and taking a walk in the sun. Um, and then there are words of affirmation, so being able to engage in positive self-talk, daily affirmations, journaling, some people call them mantras, etc. 
those would be the, the five love languages. I think I got them all right. Mm -hmm. yeah. I like how you call it self-love. Well, yeah. in that case, it's self-love because we're talking about mm -hmm. working with oneself. But the same thing applies to when you're working with a partner. Mm -hmm. Offering a partner a massage might be something your partner really, really, really likes. Or they might just not be super into massages. Like, they're happy to have a massage, but it doesn't do much for them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Or some other people might buy you a gift and you might think like, oh, this feels really impersonal. Whereas someone else might be like, wow, they spent a lot of money on this. Like, I really appreciate them. Mm -hmm. yeah. Exactly. The key is to know how you want to be loved. Mm -hmm. So in terms of um, what you mentioned earlier, Paula, about open relationships versus monogamy, you were talking about how intensity can be a barrier for you in approaching the idea of an open relationship. And, and you kind of fell into this thing that I think every human does, including myself, which is assume other people are more like us than mm -hmm. they actually are. Yes. I definitely make that assumption about people all the time and I'm constantly surprised by my own like hubris in doing so. Not that I'm in any way saying yeah. <laughs> that. No, absolutely. So true. So yeah. true. And that goes for judgment too, right? When right. you judge in certain ways, you assume other people judge you right. the same ways. Which is horrible when you're a horrible. judgmental person as I very much have been and, and to some extent continue to be. Right. Um, but I've broken down a lot of it, which is why I think I'm, I'm flourishing in the you're lifestyle that I'm flourishing We in. all are, slowly. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but with age. Yes. But as far as open relationships, because yeah, yeah. I haven't had a lot of partners, right. um, I, I thought, and I talked to my husband about this, I mm -hmm. thought maybe there was a part of me that, that uh, a slut in me that never got to come out and just be physical and totally. go out and sleep around, and, and I missed out on it. Well, there's and no missing out at all. You, if you have a slut in you, it's still in you. Well, I wasn't sure. <laughs> I wasn't sure because how, how would I know when I'm not raised to be a slut? When that is the last thing I should be, how, I, I didn't even, maybe I am, maybe right. I'm not. I never got to know. Right. Well, I guess the question there is, is that I would ask gently as a friend, um, is to what extent do you enjoy sharing intimacy with your current partner? And how much do you think you could enjoy a shallower or less intense version of that with other partners. And I'm not saying that because mm -hmm. they need to be shallower or less intense. I'm saying that because I know you have an aversion to trying to share that degree of intensity with lots of people. Yes, I do have an aversion. <laughs> but I also have a curiosity to it. Definitely. Yeah. So anyway, that's that's about as far as I've gotten on that, on yeah. that, on thinking on those levels. But, but uh, when I first started the journey of thinking about it, I thought maybe there was a you know, a more physical me that could go out and, but I think as I progressed, I realized there might not be after all. <laughs> well, it sounds sadly, like, it sounds like you're also getting more of your physical needs met in your relationship right now. Yeah, but it isn't so much about it wasn't so much about that. It was more about experimenting and and just like sex for the sake of sex. Sure, was something I never got to experience. Yeah, and who knows what what may be in the way, but. Maybe that isn't, that isn't, uh, that isn't me. Yeah, that's totally valid. Maybe it is. <laughs> <laughs> and, and sometimes it feels like it's worth, it's the time. Yeah. It's worth exploring that at, at a certain time yeah. in your life. And other times you might feel like, eh. Yeah, exactly. I'm not into it right now. Exactly. And maybe when you turn 50 or 60 or 70, it'll come back. <laughs> or 80 or 90. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. I, I was talking to um, a lovely uh, mid-60s lady um who is um gloria jackson Efertiti. i almost prefaced it with with doctor because she's so knowledgeable about shame she talks a lot about shame 
Um, but I, I did a podcast with her and I was asking about sex because obviously people continue to have sex well into their 60s and often beyond. And she was saying, yeah, other than like maybe using a little more lube, like it doesn't really change that much, even postmenopausal. Yeah, wow, that's great news. Yeah. Although apparently that change is different for everyone. So yeah, for some better, for some worse. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, going back to the, you know, for, for a physical relationship, um, and I think I mentioned to you this to you before, but and Lisa knows it, one of the the big growths that I've had in going outside of your your monogamous relationship is how sad it is that relationships that have been built on so much can be destroyed from from having an extramarital affair. Yeah, it's the it, the value that's put on that. Yeah, I've realized is is way too high. It's too high. It's cost. too high for what you've actually built together and the life you've built together and yep. it's yeah, and hopefully there'll be less marriages destroyed by it as we become more open and have these conversations that an extramarital affair does not mean that your relationship is over and and honestly like if it does that's that's fine for that relationship i think ultimately the issue is with the way we conceptualize exclusivity as the thing that makes our relationship special when really there's so much more so that makes our relationship more. special mm-hmm. So much more. You've built your empire. You've raised kids. You've gone through sickness. You've gone through so much together. Right. Right. So that's that's what's so fascinating about it. It's like if if that person had been secretly having an extramarital affair, it doesn't actually really impact necessarily anything else in your relationship with them. Not that I'm in any way condoning that behavior because I deplore it as an ethically non-monogamous person. Mm-hmm. But what's interesting about that is it really underscores the non-monogamous idea that relationships succeed or fail on their own merits and that ultimately other relationships don't even need to interact with your main relationship if you even have a main relationship because in my case I don't yeah yeah or even just that one time like it's that's even harder when that one time can can destroy something that's taken years to build I think it destroys a sense of trust and it destroys a sense of mutual sacrifice. But it's it like destroys, I was. It destroys that sense of trust because we don't. We've never had a place to talk about it. We've never had a place to learn how to forgive and how to move on about it. We've been taught that if it happens, you know, kick him or her into the curb. Like that's unacceptable. That's what we're taught. Yeah. If you have any, if you value yourself as a man or a woman, and you that happens right, right. to you, you get them the hell out of the house. That's what we've been taught, and we yeah. haven't taught how to understand, how to forgive, how to discuss it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, healing and, and rebuilding trust, like these are all extremely valuable relationship skills for sure. I'm, I'm not a hundred percent confident that a relationship can always come back from infidelity. And that I think just depends on the people. Mm-hmm. Obviously someone like yourself is much more willing to look at forgiveness. Yeah. But you asked me that question 10 years ago and I would have said, heck no, I'm not putting up with that. Right. Like right. it was very clear. Yeah. It was a very black and white answer. Yeah. Not shit you would put up with. Yeah. 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 It's interesting how that changes. And there's also a lot of interesting research to um, even just on hormonal regulation, like talking about um, men, which is one of the only things I've, I've looked at for older men having extramarital affairs. There is sometimes, sometimes a complication of androgen deficiency. Um, like, for example, mm-hmm. you'll hear, um, I, I heard one one um not a testimonial but one one piece of feedback that i read about a man who was having an extramarital affair after it had been found out and it had cost him his marriage and it had strained his relationship with all of his children he described it as being 
like a whole new man, like having a renewed lease on life. And he was no longer in that relationship, the extramarital relationship. He just had an extramarital affair. And it like absolutely revitalized him as a human. And even when asked, like, was it worth it to have, you know, a couple of nights of sex and like a, I don't know whether tryst is the right word, but, but certainly temporarily sex for the sake of sex was it worth it to lose everything you'd built and his response was absolutely i would not have traded that experience for anything in my life didn't you send me an article of the 10 regrets uh, oh, before dying and that made it in there Which? not having an affair made it in there as one of the top 10 regrets can, at the it, end of life it's apparently a really really big thing if your hormones are sliding really that made it in there though yeah it made it in as huh. one of the top 10 are there many lists this is just one of the lists. Yeah. Sure. I, I wonder what that says. Might be Playboy or something. <laughs> I, I wonder what that says Well, the says curiosity, about. right? Who The curiosity probably is, if you're in a 50-year marriage, yeah. how could there not be curiosity at some point? Yeah. And you never lived it out. And I wonder how many women have the exact same regret but wouldn't put it down on paper. Mm-hmm. Probably. Yep. <laughs> probably, say the married women. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Oh, that's fantastic. Okay. Um, you know, you, um, actually, going back to Esther she has an, in, you might enjoy, she's got uh, how different cultures treat extramarital affairs and the, how they value, because you, you said you, you value um, honesty, right? Hugely, hugely. Yeah, so how different cultures value honestly, honesty right. differently. Right. And in, in the face of an extramarital affair, which is quite an interesting section. Well, for some cultures, it's a given. Like, yeah. men will... It's just not talked about. It's just expected men will cheat yeah. and women won't cheat, which is garbage. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, women didn't have an opportunity to cheat because they, they depended on the men for so long. Yeah. Or didn't have the largest in, The largest demographic in cheating is women. Growing, I mean. Growing. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Because they're more independent and working and... Yeah, they have options. I feel like the healthier way to go about these shifts is to just talk more about mm-hmm. having non-monogamous relationships. Yes, I totally agree. Yeah. I think yeah. it's way less painful. Like yeah. I think it harms fewer people and fewer children, mm-hmm. and I think it's just healthier and happier for families. It's mm-hmm. these conversations that will start, uh, you know, hopefully moving into the living room, but they're hard to have. It's going to take time. And I think it's really hard to transition from an infidelity into a non-monogamous relationship. I think a lot of people think mm-hmm. that that's a solution, and it's like. Non-monogamy introduces difficulty and complication. It doesn't solve. Right. I but mean, yes, it solves like the need to be quote unquote monogamous or, or, but I mean, that doesn't change that you still have to build enormous amounts of trust. It doesn't change that you, you still have to be faithful. You're just faithful in a different way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, there's still rules. Absolutely. And, and there don't have to be rules because relationships can be built on principles instead of rules. Mm-hmm. But for the purposes of this conversation, yes, there are still rules. I just wanted to throw out there principles yeah. and values-based relationships. Rock yeah. my socks. We're going to get there. Yeah. We're going to get there. As long as people are talking, it gets us closer. We're not there yet. Yeah. Because we've had no role models. Yeah. Who do we have to look for? Like, I don't think any of us have parents or grandparents that can teach us how to have non-monogamous relationships. Sure, sure. Um, one, of my, um, one of my partners, actually, one of my comet partners, so I call them comet partners when they're people I see once every three to six months, but not people I see regularly. So I'll have, like, long-time friends that I'll sleep with once in a while, or we'll do, like, a BDSM scene or have sexy times, whatever. Typically, if it's just BDSM, I wouldn't refer to them as one of my intimate partners. They would be one of my play partners. Mm. And I tend to make that distinction because oh, BDSM's quite asexual for me, mm-hmm. whereas for some folks it's not. So even if I'm playing with someone for whom BDSM is sexual, 
a lot of the time it won't be sexual for me. So we'll do a scene and they'll really enjoy themselves in the scene. And then they'll go home. Well, we'll do our aftercare and then they'll go home at the end of the day. <laughs> and then I'll, you know, have one of my one of my sex partners over and we'll have sex. Oh, so it's like your foreplay. No, because the BDSM isn't sexual for me, so it isn't even necessarily arousal, but I'll get my sex needs met in my sexual relationships, and I'll get any BDSM needs that I have met in my BDSM relationships. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Yeah, it's part of what makes me a relationship anarchist. Not that anarchist means no rules, but that anarchist means I only participate in rules that I agree to and help build in advance. No. Yeah, so I'll, I'll have all of these relationships that are like custom relationships that I design with the person I'm in the relationship with, and it's what works for our lifestyles. So if, wow, I'm learning so much. <laughs> so, for example, one of the people that gave me the language of principles and values-based relationships um, is a person I cannot name on this podcast, but also a person who is living with their possibly anchor partner, nesting partner. I'm not sure how they identify, but their partner is actually a second-generation polyamorous person, which is to say that his parents were non-monogamous. Which was how I got on this tangent, because you were talking about not all of us can learn from our parents or grandparents, and we can't, but apparently some of us can. But there's a small number, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we definitely get influenced by their, their thoughts, for sure. Well, there's the whole yeah. 60s communist movement, by which I don't mean communism, but I mean living in commun... I mean, which is very similar. I mean living in communes, mm -hmm. um, multiple sex partners, mm -hmm. a lot more of that what people now would call a hippy-dippy. Yeah. yeah. That's where compersion comes from, right? Like, yeah. it comes from that movement. Like, a lot of this language was pioneered by people, not even in this generation. But we're now taking it to a place and using it in a way that I'm I'm not sure people were expecting, or if they were expecting, I don't know that they thought it would ever be like this. It's mm. because we've had increasingly um, more tolerant parents. Yeah. And so each generation is getting it from their parents. And the next one, I mean, I look at our kids' generation, and I'm so excited for them. Me too. I'm so excited for the fact that they have, like, right now, two of my kids are teens, and neither of them will identify what gender they're attracted to. Cool. They don't even feel a need to. Right. And that's amazing. Yeah. That is great. Yeah. And that's like parenting generation after generation that opens our minds, and especially here, where we, we live in a in the Pacific Northwest, we're all pioneers and immigrants and aside from the First Nations, but the rest of us are just explorers. So yes. we're, we're ready to, we're still in the Wild West. As they say, it is our home on native land. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes, and I should acknowledge that we're on the unceded um, traditional Coast Salish territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh folks. Always, yeah. yeah. Wow, well, we got, we got off topic, but it was such a good topic. I'm, I'm curious if either of you have any questions about non-monogamy. Not right now, but <laughs> in lunch. 10 years. Right, right, right. <laughs> when I'm ready for it. Cool. <laughs> but is it, is it, are you true, I mean, are you a jealous guy? Have you ever been a jealous person? I, I have experienced jealousy. I don't identify myself with that emotion any more than I would recommend anyone identify as an angry person or as, you know what I mean? Like, you can, you can identify with moments of sadness and say, I'm a depressed person, but I don't think it's conducive to less depression. Do you think a little bit of jealousy is good in a relationship? I think a little bit of jealousy is healthy and normal. I don't think it's especially good. And I think calling jealousy a desired outcome is to encourage it. Whereas accepting a jealous outcome is to accept being human. Nice. Nicely said. 
-hmm. not all people are going to be jealous and not all people are going to be jealous in the same situation so Mm -hmm. sometimes we'll get people that are in situations where folks would typically get jealous and they're not jealous and everyone goes oh you must not be a jealous person but i mean jealousy is just an umbrella emotion like any umbrella emotion that humans might experience it's just a thing on the menu all the time Mm -hmm. you may not order it very often your brain may not order it for you very often Um, but ultimately those emotions that we get are integrating all the information in our world for us right they're looking through the lenses that we've prescribed for ourselves that Mm -hmm. our society has prescribed for ourselves that our parents have and they're saying okay is this a threat is this dangerous what information does this human need right right now if there was a weird rustling in the trees you know two hours ago and you're hearing that weird rustling again and you know you've been walking on a trail for a couple hours you don't need to know what kind of animal is stalking you you don't need to know what size the cougar is you don't need to know any of that none of that's really relevant to your personal safety but emotionally your brain might just give you a really seriously creeped out fear response that's all you need to know to get the (laughs) hell out of where you are or to be on high alert. Like these systems have evolved to really be adaptive and help us when we need compressed information. Unfortunately, we process social pain the same way we process physical pain. Mm. That means when you're in a socially dangerous situation, your brain's acknowledging, this could threaten my life. This could literally threaten my source of income. This could threaten my social standing. This could threaten my relationship with my children. This could threaten my ability to have children. These are all very real outcomes for a lot of people. We're talking about infidelity. It's one of the reasons it's so painful. Like it can damage something that, as you mentioned, yeah. Paula, it took decades to build. Mm-hmm. So when talking about jealousy as an emotion, it's really important to get clear what's being threatened and then to address the underlying filters that your brain is looking through when it's coming to these conclusions for you to help you. That's a good place to begin then. Mm-hmm. Right? Seeing the threats and then acknowledging them to realize how yeah how real or not real they they are yeah yeah that's why i choose 10 years later to talk about (laughs) (laughs) because there's just too much on the line right now with the kids yeah our life everything that we built so yeah well, and that's also assuming that it's going to threaten those things. You can have well, all these conversations without it. makes it complicated. There's sure. no deny. Sure. And it's... it's and there's it's fine the way it is. Yeah, oh, yeah. Not just fine. It's amazing the way it is. And that's so. that's the thing. Yeah. You're really happy where you mm-hmm. are. So why change anything? Exactly. But yeah. 10 years later, it may not be the case. So <laughs> <laughs> we'll revisit it then. <laughs> I often talk about BDSM as people going through seasons of kink. Mm-hmm. Not to quote Rents 525,600 minutes, but... Um, <laughs> How do you measure how do you measure marriages, right? Like you measure it in seasons. Like you said, yeah. you talk about it as your first, second, and third marriage. It very much is seasons. In the current season, you're really, really happy where things are. There's no need to change anything, nor would I ever suggest a person do that when they're in a happy, great, strong place. Mm-hmm. I think what it comes down to is is anticipating and and being able to have conversations long before there's a need to act on them. Mm-hmm, exactly. People need a long time. I think ten years is long enough. To <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Maybe ten years is the right length of time to talk about these things. Because <laughs> it's hard. There's a lot. To, there's a lot to unpack. Yeah. 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 Awesome. Well, cool. we are. We are on to our last two questions, okay. if I can okay. beg your patience a little mm-hmm. further. Yeah, timing's going okay. So, 
how did I was going to ask this seems almost off topic now to go back to what we were talking about with intimacy but how did your expectations of sex change once you'd experienced really excellent sex <laughs> that was a huge <laughs> sigh I can start my expectations of sex changed because it wasn't a chore anymore it was actually something that I do because I enjoy it right. and I get great pleasure out of it not because I have to maintain my relationship and keep my husband satisfied. Right. Tell me more about the pleasure piece, about how your expectations of your pleasure change, just like when Lisa was talking about, I will no longer accept sex. That's the last time we're having sex where I don't <laughs> orgasm. Well, I, I think just like, like I said, the cannabis, um, the microdosing of just opening up those channels to the opportunity. Right. It allowed me to open myself to that opportunity to just be in the present and enjoy it. And... And so the, the cannabis isn't necessarily needed anymore, but but right. knowing what my body can do and what it can experience is is the key finding. Awesome. So, yeah. So I want to feel that. I don't want to. I don't want to have a chore. <laughs> yeah. Who does? If I can turn the dishes into an orgasmic experience, you better believe I would turn the dishes into. <laughs> That's <that>. it. <laughs> and it's amazing because when your when your mindset starts to change, I honestly. I walk down the street and realize all these people get horny right. and they all have sex and they love it. I started to look at everybody so differently before they were just bodies walking down the street. And all of a sudden they were all like these sexual beings. Especially around. in Las Vegas. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but all of a sudden there was sex all around me, birds and creatures. And I was like, wow, sex is everywhere. It is important. It is a driving force in our nature. And I forgot that for so long. Well, think about those women that walk around with resting bitch faces, okay? You know you could tell they're underfucked. It's so obvious. We actually asked one of the sex therapists, and she said, yep, you can tell by their face. Because <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we asked, because we're like, you know, I used to walk around with this face, and I kind of saw it, see these women, and I'm like, are they not doing it? She's like, nope, <laughs> they're underfucked. <laughs> I, think it's, I think it's important to hold space for asexuals, too, and, and for people who are, say, grieving or who have, like, other Absolutely, reasons. and that's not what we're referring to. No. We're, we're, we're referring just talking to about women in long-term relationships gotcha. that have given through. up on right. sex. Which that's is a legitimate thing about. to be talking about, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Not, not anything else, just the kind of what we, what we experience, and, and we've seen a lot of women have experienced it now because of yeah. our workshops and and the number of people we talk to that it's we're just a textbook and we've read about it now we're like oh my god they just wrote that about me <laughs> but really it's women like so many women like ourselves it's not yeah. we're not unique yeah i and then again that's the flip side of the conversation we were having where we tend to assume people are more like us than than not is that there are a lot of people like us as well yeah 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 yeah, yeah. how has sex changed for you um well Oh, I already t shared about yes. that. Like not about coming to that breaking point, yeah, making that decision. Yeah, not mediocre, yeah. right? Like just n taking responsibility and saying what it is I want and what I need. And then uh, him just simply, oh, that's it? Well, right, no problem. So he just wants to please. So tries harder and it gets better. Awesome. It's really amazing that your partner has that growth mindset with you and is willing it, to make those changes. It took a while, but uh, <laughs> he was very threatened in the beginning, but when he realized that there was no downside to it. How did you convince him of that? <laughs> well, uh, number one, I think he was threatened because he, of my curiosity, and I'm a very curious person. So he's, he's just thinking I would try everything, including cheating on him. Oh, wow. Yes, and, uh, and then when I... I, I don't know how, how you, you brought him on the journey he, yeah. he's been part of it 
And I think I think he also knew that he better jump on board. The train was leaving station. Yeah. You could be on it or not. <laughs> like, there's no choice. He had to jump on board. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I think that's it. And you yeah. sent me an article about a year ago about women going through, and I'll call it again, uh, the awakening, not sure. midlife crisis, sure. <laughs> but the midlife awakening, but that, that they be, do become sexually curious. Many women yeah. become extremely sexually curious. And if their partners shut them down, that's when their pussies close. And wow. it's, it's not, a, or they cheat. Right. Yes. So, so you know, these the partners better be open-minded and be be open the, and receptive. Like there's stages for women, right? Like when you just have kids and the b- babies and they're still young, you don't have time to think about anything up, up until they're what five or six years old, and then you put everything to the side burner. But then uh, when they're older, like my kids now are eight or ten, and that's about forty. That's actually when you start thinking, oh, okay, well, what else is there? to life and to love and to sex. Mm-hmm. So 40s is, it could be a very dangerous time for women. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Very pleasurable time. Pleasure, <laughs> yes, pleasure, for sure, but curious. Yes, a very, very curious, curious time. time. I, I noticed also, like, when you were talking about the way you presented this information to your partner, it, it sounds really interesting he was so threatened by it because you were already showing that you weren't exploring this with other people. Because I know, you were showing 26 years, never cheated on him a day in my life, and he's threatened. Like, But he does tend to be more of a jealous, a little bit insecure person. Got so you. he's done his self-development throughout right. these years, right, right. and he's just opened himself to that. So right. just simply switching from a fixed mindset to a growth mindset in all areas of our lives, right. that makes a big difference, not just in, in sex, but also in personal development. That's huge. And that shift as well from mm-hmm. not why am I curious right now, but why have I stayed for 26 years? Yeah. Why have I stayed in this relationship? Like they're, they're, that gives that's us a, value. Yeah. That's a that's a good way to sort of shine the light on security rather than insecurity. Yeah, and say, you know. Another piece we learned through our events, and this is totally anecdotal. 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 Yeah. Anecdotal. Yeah. Um, is that the women coming to our events are they, you know, and it's, it is a special group of women, but they're open. They want to grow. They want they they want to become learners of their lives. And when we've tried to include men. It's often a very different approach. Men feel like if you're going to anything that's personal growth, many men, not all men, but they, they feel them. there's something wrong with them. Not that they're growing and evolving, but that they're being fixed. Right. And changing that is really difficult. So it, it, so when you ask you know, about the lag time for our partners, it's because first they need to realize they're great. There's, there's no fixing. It's just grow with me. Mm-hmm. Keep yeah. growing and keep evolving. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, that's the key, growing together. I'm very fortunate that I set that expectation with my partners from the very beginning. Exactly. Well, different generation too. Yeah, and just the information availability is different. Mm-hmm. The expectations socially are different. And mm-hmm. I tend to I tend to partner with people who are assigned female at birth. Yeah. So there tends to be a socialization of girlhood with them, and there tends to be this association of self-improvement. Yeah, not, not egos, right. like big, huge egos getting in the way too, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I do partner with other folks. It's just mm-hmm. that Your preference, yeah. Uh, not even necessarily a preference. It just seems to be the way that the cookie has crumbled, so to speak. Mm-hmm. I, I tend to I tend to see more. Um, 
Yeah, I, I wonder sometimes if it's just like the what's easiest, what kind of relationships are easiest to form in society, if that's why I'm seeing kind of the distribution that I'm seeing. I think you need depth. Yeah. I think you need somebody that will speak and dissect and explore with you. And if someone can't go deep with you, you probably it probably doesn't suit you. Yeah, so I those think that's the, true, that yeah. that being born a female, whether because of culture or whatever else it may be, innately most likely they're they've been talking their whole lives. They, they that's what they've been trained in. So they, you they can do get say that women spend more minutes talking per day in our society. <laughs> yep, we sure do. That's really cool. <laughs> but I mean, I definitely I definitely have met other folks that go really deep with me as well. Um, mm-hmm. I think. I think sometimes it's just about a feeling of safety and it takes a certain nurturing energy around someone who's mask presenting for me to feel safe and comfortable with them. And I think I've also had a lot of violence that I've received from masculine presenting people. And I think that's really damaged my ability to trust and love with men. Yeah. Well, because when I say about going to the depths, men could have the depths, but they may not often have them, the verbal skills to express it, or they may have the walls built, which is maybe what you've experienced with some of the more traditional or stereotyped sure. extreme masculine men is that they've got that wall, so they y- that is impossible to crack, yeah. even though they could have plenty of depth in there. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I've definitely found plenty of, plenty of masculine folks that do have depth. I, I do find that in the like in the gay men's community specifically, it isn't my cup of tea for some reason. And I haven't really quite put my finger on why that is, but there is something about it that still plays into a lot of toxic masculinity that I've spent my whole life trying to get away from. Mm, Interesting. Yeah, whereas in queerer circles, when I'm dealing with non-binary folks, when I'm dealing with trans folks, when I'm dealing with um, that whole kind of broad gender query spectrum, Mm -hmm. um, I, I tend to find folks that are assigned male at birth or female at birth that doesn't really matter as much it's like folks that are in that kind of queer space have just spent a lot of time dissecting gender they spent a lot of time going deep and they tend to have pretty good emotional awareness yeah which is probably what you like yeah but but genitals matter so much less to me than what you were talking about about having that depth and yeah Mm -hmm. yeah yeah great well thank you so much for having the conversation (laughs) wow Thank you. That was a lot of fun. Yeah, it was. Thanks for having us. Awesome. You're very welcome. So how did you like it, Intimates? Leave your comments on facebook.com slash intimate interactions or directly on patreon.com slash Victor Salmon. Both communities are easy to find from intimatepodcast.com. So what are you waiting for? Go join the free Intimates community and start connecting with others. I'll see you on there. Disclaimer. I apologize if I said something that hit a nerve or played off a hateful idea or stereotype. I'm open to being called in. Chances are, in six months, I'll look back aghast and see something problematic I've since grown from. I'm certainly not perfect, but I am trying to be mindful of the voices I lift up and the perspectives I encourage. You can email feedback to podcast at victorsalmon.com. Thanks for your kindness. Attribution. The tracks I use are published under the Creative Commons Attribution License. The intro track was Lost Souls by Portrayal, and the outro track was Resurrection by Uncle Milk. Land Acknowledgement I apologize first for any pronunciations I might butcher. I wanted to acknowledge that I recorded this podcast on the unceded traditional Coast Salish territories of the Musqueam, Kwantlen, Stazuminas, Stolo, Tsawasan, and tsleil nations. 
shout out to the Sequepmec Nation on whose land I got my degree. Considering the Kamloops Indian Residential School closed only in 1996 when I was 10, I have found nothing but unending patience and kindness in the Tekemloops Te Sequepmec folks with whom I've interacted. Let's never forget genocide in the hope we don't make the same dehumanizing, cruel mistakes again. Thank you.